This Dharma Talk is brought to you by the Chicago Zen Meditation Community. Learn about us and our teacher, Miyoshi Thompson, at zenchicago.org. Um, so the talk today is going to be exactly about what Miyoshi just said, um, a little bit about Rohatsu and what it's supposed to mean. Um, and it's going to try to make that a little bit personal. So today, I guess, let's start with the candy. Um, so if you'll indulge me for a second, take a look at the candy um, and just really feel it for a second. Is it rough? Is it smooth? How does it look to you? Does it look delicious? How does it smell? Does it even really have a smell? Is it really an orange? <laughs> Close your eyes. Slowly taste the candy just a little bit. Does, does it connect to other things in the world? Can you feel where it was grown? Feel free to keep the candy in your mouth for the rest of the talk. It relates to some of the things we're going to talk about. So I'm 218 pounds right now, the highest I've ever been in my life. I think that some of that relates to um, working too much. Some of that relates to going through a divorce. And strangely, the antidote to loneliness seems to be pizza, of all things, <laughs> as if that like was the right answer to that equation. Um, you know, I don't really understand why that works that way. Like, I don't really think pizza cures loneliness. I, I, I've tried now at least seven times in the last <laughs> couple of months, and it doesn't really seem to change anything. But at the time I'm making the choice, it feels like it might. And so that's the struggle I've been thinking a little bit about as I think about Rohatsu. And I'm going to tell a little bit of a story about it. Um, so we're doing this in December 1st through second and then the rest of the week and as Miyoshi said it's an opportunity for extended or extra practice and it's an opportunity in Japanese it means the eighth day of the 12th month which is thought to be the day that Buddha actually enlightened and we're celebrating enlightenment and last year I was thinking about that and I was like wow it's really great that he could sit under a Bodhi tree and become enlightened I'm sitting here struggling with whatever it is I'm struggling with in this case um, pizza um, and, you know, I recall that one of the views of enlightenment is actually just practice, that like one of the things we're celebrating is Buddhist practice. Um, and there's some really pretty wonderful stories among the Buddha's life that, you know, at some level you're like, how relevant is it? He was a prince and after he was a prince, he was like, he went to the forest and he didn't have any life whatsoever, it wasn't connected to anything material, and none of those things are, are that real. But I've kind of come to the conclusion that most of the things that seem hard to grasp are actually kind of allegorical in our practice. Like there's something about taking it to the extreme and giving you a chance to go look at it and play with it in your mind. Um, so today I offer a little bit of 
the part of Buddha's story that I think is relevant to pizza and oranges or fake orange slices. Um, basically, what Buddha did before um, he became enlightened was he started searching. So he searched for peace. Um, and basically, the future Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, became determined to find enlightenment through meditation. So he went through various masters and various teachers. And before he got to the point where he sat down and became enlightened, he went through a seeking process. One that's often described as fruitless, which I find kind of interesting, because that's not the way my practice feels. When I try something and fail, it doesn't feel fruitless. It feels like part of a story. Um, so the last place he studied was actually a forest. And during this time, he realized the samadhi of neither perception or non-perception, which sounds very detailed. Um, but he basically started to question his senses, question his senses about what he, whether they were real, whether perceptions were reality, or whether they were non-perception was reality. If you shut them down, does it matter? Right? Does, is that something that's relevant? Should you ignore the desire for an orange slice? And he saw that that state allowed him to transcend all ordinary, all ordinary states of consciousness. But whenever he came out of meditation, apparently he said that's not quite enough. So that's, he didn't get to the chance of what life or death really means. So what did he do next? And this is the part that I find absolutely mind-blowing. He attempted to shut down all of his needs, the emotions and drives connection to his perceptions. So he stopped eating. There's actually sculptures of the Buddha you know, there's one in the Met or the Art Institute that is like, he's so skinny, it's just like absolutely appalling. He like became gaunt and didn't eat at all. Now we're not talking about not eating bad stuff and pizza. We're not talking, we're talking about not eating anything, not drinking, not doing anything. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't have a significant other. He didn't, none of the things. He did, like he literally did nothing. He stopped bathing according to, according to Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, and apparently his five buddies who were also doing the same thing, who were also not eating, said, hey, that's too much. Like, you, you know, you, you really, you're going to die. Like, you're actually, this isn't okay. Um, and he, all he ate is shriveled, dropped guava, apparently. Um, and his body became so wasted, and he didn't cut his hair and beard, and he became impossible, really, to integrate with the world. And it was at that point that he stopped and said, okay, I'm going to eat, I'm going to sleep. I'm going to bathe. And then the next thing that happens is he decides that he's going to go sit until he solves the life and death, uh, life and death question. And, you know, he kind of figured out that just not eating, you can't just not eat. It's that you need to eat. It's healthy. You can't, I mean, maybe you can not eat pizza and not eat orange slices, but you can't, you have to eat. You have to do some of these things. You can't not participate entirely. And it's interesting that he was able to establish that much control over his desires. And according to one of the great alley lists of different items, the five desires are wealth, sexual love, food, drink, fame, and sleep, which strike me as pretty well a good list. I, sleeping in, being famous, getting drunk, eating too much food, you know, these things seem like the desires of people I know, including myself. <laughs> And then so he sits down and he says, okay, look, um, we're going to sit until we resolve life and death. And then what happens at the time 
but he gets attacked by a demon called Mara, who, guess what, represents desire, of all things. Um, also, apparently, death um, and a couple other things. A great description I like of Mara is, monks, Mara is continually, ceaselessly hovering around you, thinking, perhaps I'll get an opportunity by means of the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body. Perhaps I'll get an opportunity by means of the intellect. Thus, monks, you should dwell with the guard doors to your senses well guarded. And then the night he attained enlightenment, Mara was there to tempt him. He wanted, according to Tignanat, he wanted the Buddha to be a politician, to be a king, a president, a foreign minister, running a business, have a lot of money, have lots of beautiful men or women uh, to sleep with, and always uh, and, and tempt the Buddha to go in these directions. I think that's a you know, it might have been slightly different imagery, but um, and what does Buddha do? Apparently the earth rises to help him and he spends a moment being tactile with it and touches it and stays present in that moment through that night. And after that happens and the rest of us go, okay, Buddha, what happened? Like, how did you do this? Like, what's going on? We're left with the Four Noble Truths, which I'm gonna quote two of. The cause of suffering is craving and fundamental ignorance. We suffer because of our mistaken belief that we are separate, independent, solid. And the third noble truth, that was the second, is the cessation of creating suffering by refraining from doing the things that make us suffer. I find that a little hard to understand what to do. It sounds great to do refrain from doing the things that make us suffer, but in practice, I don't always know which things make me suffer. Pizza looks really good. The second realization is the awareness that more desire brings more suffering. All hardships in daily life arise from greed and desire. Those with little desire and ambition are able to relax their body and mind free from entanglement. The third realization is the awareness that the human mind is always searching outside itself and never feels fulfilled. This brings about unwholesome activities. Those are from the discourse on the eight realizations. Um, they're a little bit of an explanation. Bodhisattvas, on the other hand, know the value of having few desires. They live simply and peacefully so they can devote themselves to practicing the way. That helps, that gets me a little closer. Um, the Bodhisattva vows we always chant is actually the easiest one for me. It says, desires are inexhaustible. I vow to put an end to them. Like maybe we should think about which those desires are deeply and then shut them down. But that still feels like I can't tell the difference between just sitting in the forest and not eating and just shutting down all desires. I don't know how to sort my desires. Like I don't know how, you know, I know that the six pizza is bad, but like, I don't get that. Like, I don't know, I don't know when, I'm in an airport and I'm busy. Is the Chinese food bad or is it not? Is it, you know, I don't know always how to, and it's with people too. I, I made a gift to someone and it totally blew up in my face not long ago thinking that it was a good result. So I don't always know. Um, and so I guess I've been thinking about that as I got to this Rohatsu. And um, the part of the end of this is the best answer I've found, and it's from another teacher. Um, there's a, this is a little bit of a paraphrase from some of what Bear Gokin says at Zen Mountain Monastery. Um, and he talks a little bit about 
the fact that we overestimate the pleasure and satisfaction of doing things. So the question is, will it do what we think it's going to do? How will we feel when we go through with that process? How will we feel when you eat a real orange and you really taste it versus how you feel when you have that orange slice? Usually when I sit down and really focus on an orange slice, at some point, or like a fake one, I think, wow, this is kind of like fake. It doesn't taste very good. But if I go fast, it doesn't do that. And, you know, you're getting to a point where you're trying to hear your thoughts. He quotes Maizumi Roshi, who says that desires are often in the emotional domain as well as the habitual. So they're difficult to take care of them. Take care. We have to take care of them little by little. We have to sort of learn to hear this voice about like what 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 is good, like what is good, what is what is enough, what is the appropriate amount. It's not nothing, and it's not everything. It's something else. And it's easy when you're sitting in sashin eating a new just beautiful food because the appropriate quantity comes to you, and it's gorgeous. And it's a chance to like feel what that feels like, hopefully the opposite of eating that orange slice that I fed you all. But the idea is that maybe sometimes you need both. You don't, you, maybe you need to hear what doesn't fit and you also need to know what fits. So I posit to you that that little Mara experience is real for all of us. We all have that where desire comes and tries to take over our next set of actions. And according to, to Bear's talk, he talks about how um, there is, if desires are real, but they're not necessarily true. Like they're not really going to help you the way you think they're going to. So the test in his mind is, is this, this desire is real? I feel this need. I feel this need today to do something, to experience something, to eat something. But it, his question is, is it true? Like, do, do you, can you say to yourself, hey, this desire is true? And that sort of makes sense to me. In my mind, I think it's more, for me, it seems broader. Like the question is, is this open? Is it healthy? Is it respectful or is it connected? Like there's something like that comes back. Something that, like, that I have no problem saying, yeah, that's a good shot. Versus something where I say, eh, I don't want to answer that question. And so I guess I think for me in the Rahatsu process, it's a little bit of faith that you can change your react, your relationship to desire. And there's a story there where you know, the Buddha was pretty tempted and pretty strong about some of it that's meaningful when you go to sit down. And that was what I wanted to bring up today was the question of, you know, as we sit for Rahatsu, what is it, like, what is it, are there parts of the story that are really meaningful to you? Or um, how do you sort desire from sort of fake desire? How do you know when you're talking to Mara and when you're talking to the need that really needs to be something in your life? Mm -hmm.